Listener Production. Hello, Tom Tilly with you. This is The Briefing and today we're taking a deep dive on Uber because last week a huge trove of documents from Uber were leaked to the media. This is about 124,000 documents leaked to The Guardian by a man called Mark McGann who was Uber's former chief lobbyist in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. So this huge cachet of documents has revealed more about Uber's aggressive expansion strategy where it launched its service illegally around the world, including here in Australia. We're going to discuss where that strategy has left us, the consumers, are we better off? And what's the future of ride sharing and transport when Uber is still struggling to make a profit? First, today's headlines with Rhonda Patrick. It is Friday, July 22. U.S. President Joe Biden has tested positive for COVID. The 79-year-old has had two shots of Pfizer and two boosters and is taking antiviral drugs. Yeah, he's uh, responded, he's tweeted that he's doing great and his press sec said this. President Biden is currently experiencing mild symptoms, mostly a runny nose and fatigue, with an occasional dry cough which started yesterday evening. Yeah, that's Biden's press sec, Corinne Jean-Pierre. Yes, yeah, so apparently he's still carrying out his duties in the White House, um, which is pretty amazing. He's obviously in isolation, pretty scary at his age. He's obviously in a high-risk category. Um, mm. The US is seeing a big bump in COVID numbers as well. They're up 25% on the last month. And obviously here in Australia, we're seeing another big wave where our hospitalizations are at similar levels to the January Omicron surge. PM Anthony Albanese has weighed in on comments made by Scott Morrison in a sermon on the weekend. Yes, so on Sunday, Scott Morrison addressed a Perth Pentecostal church. Um, it was the church of Margaret Court, and he gave a sermon, and this was one of the controversial parts of it. We don't trust in governments. We don't trust in the United Nations, thank goodness. As someone who's been in it, If you are putting your faith in those things, like I put my faith in the Lord, you are making a mistake. Yes, that was a pretty bizarre thing to say for a former Prime Minister, and Anthony Albanese was asked about it yesterday. Provides some explanation, perhaps, of why, in my view, clearly, he didn't lead a government uh, that was worthy of the Australian people. Uh, I find it astonishing that in what must have been, I guess, a a moment of frankness, uh, he has said he doesn't believe in government. Yeah, what do you make of all that, Rihanna? It's quite strange, and someone who's saying that um, that he was in it, he's still in it as a serving serving member for the electorate of Cook. And so uh, it's... I'm quite surprised and I'm I'm not sure uh, what it is about the UN that really gets him a little bit hot under the collar. Yeah, well, him and the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott really didn't like um, being lectured by the UN, as Tony Abbott said. Um, Yeah, when these comments first came out from Morrison earlier in the week, um, some of the articles put the focus on him saying, you know, it was all part of God's plan and they found that quite concerning. But that's something a lot of Pentecostals say all the time. It was this comment that really got my attention, you know, telling them not to trust in governments. Again, that's something that's often said in these circles. It's a a very commonly held attitude that, you know, put your faith in God, don't put your faith in man, including governments. But when you've got the former Prime Minister himself saying it, it just sounds terrible. 
And there's been a bizarre twist in the Ricky Martin incest allegations. So last week it was revealed the Latino pop singer's nephew was accusing him of incest, saying they'd been in a relationship which led the nephew to take a domestic violence protection order against the singer. Yeah, overnight a Puerto Rican court dismissed the order after Martin's nephew withdrew his allegations. And Martin's lawyers have said there was never anything more than a troubled individual making false allegations with absolutely nothing to substantiate them. And one of Australia's biggest music festivals, Splendour in the Grass, finally gets underway today after a three-year COVID hiatus. All of us have had a, a, a pretty tough time over the last few years, as everyone has. But for the live music sector, probably first to close, last to open. And it does feel like it's a real line in the sand now. That's co-founder Jess DeCrew there. And 50,000 people are heading to Byron Bay for the three-day event. It's great news. It's good to see them up and running again. It's such an important festival for Australian fans and Australian musicians and international musicians. Gorillas, The Strokes, Tyler, The Creator, A Playing Glass, Animals, Tim Minch and a bunch of great Australian acts as well. You wishing you were there? Uh, yeah, I did for a split second get a little bit of FOMO, got to be honest, and then realised I remembered how cold it was last time. <laughs> <laughs> no one thinks about the cold when they think Byron Bay, but yeah, it, it does get really cold in winter, particularly at Splendour. Um, there was a little bit of controversy this year um, with the festival after under-18s were told this month they'd need an adult to accompany them because of a change in licensing laws. Previously, the rule only applied to under 16. So that affected 2,000 people, roughly, who are probably not that happy to be hanging out with their parents this weekend. Yeah, depending on how cool their parents are. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right, Rihanna, we'll catch you again next week. In a moment, I'm talking Uber. Have you ever felt ripped off by Uber surge pricing? Uber's a great service in many ways, but I know personally there's been times where I'm very glad that taxis with their predictable pricing structures still exist. It's been 10 years now since Uber first came onto the scene, which caused huge disruption at the time. A lot of angst for taxi drivers, especially individuals and small businesses who'd shelled out tens of thousands of dollars on taxi licenses, which became almost worthless. And what was so crazy about Uber's entry into the market was that what they were doing at the time was actually illegal. We didn't have regulations around ride sharing in private cars. And what last week's big Uber leak from The Guardian has revealed is how this was a coordinated strategy around the world to enter all these markets illegally and then get to work aggressively lobbying governments to make it legal. As you're about to hear, More than 124,000 internal Uber files were leaked by a former lobbyist. So we're going to find out what we learned from those documents and where this whole big journey of ride-sharing disruption has left us as consumers. Ben Butler is a business reporter for The Guardian Australia. Ben, thanks for joining us. So who leaked what? Yeah, so this is about 124,000 documents um, leaked to The Guardian by um, a man called Mark McGann, who was Uber's former chief lobbyist in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. It's basically the contents of his email inbox plus instant messages and WhatsApp exchanges that sort of reveal what was going on at the sort of very highest levels within Uber between around sort of late 2013 and early 
2017. And uh, they've been combed through by the team at The Guardian and other media organisations working through the International Consortium of um, Investigative Journalists. So why did this guy want to leak all this information? He's had a think about it and he's decided that what Uber was up to at that time needs to be exposed because he says at that time period, Uber was knowingly operating illegally in dozens of countries and and misled drivers about what kind of deal they could get, how good it would be driving for Uber. He accepts that he's to blame for some of the conduct that he describes, some of which is quite poor, but he thinks people need to know about this. Okay, so what are the most shocking revelations from this big leak? The really big one is Travis Kalanick, who was then the chief executive of Uber, saying that violence guarantees success. And this was at a time when taxi drivers were up in arms about Uber coming into cities across Europe especially, and there were protests, there were tyres burning in the street, there was, was quite a bit of violence and that he sort of welcomed this chaos and and civil disorder as a way to advance Uber's business interests. And I guess we saw it playing out in real time. Um, Firstly, when Uber started in in Australia um, in 2012, they were essentially organising rides in registered hire cars. But when they introduced UberX, which is the model we all know now where you can get in a private citizen's car, that was illegal at the time. And I guess what we're we're seeing is that that was a coordinated and very well acknowledged strategy. Yes, that's right. So it was illegal. They knew it. And they set about building large streams of revenue in cities like Melbourne and Sydney, especially in a situation where they knew it was illegal. And then the public affairs team's job was to come along and get it made legal after the fact. So it was a seek repentance uh, later kind of situation, right? Melbourne and Sydney in particular were very, very large sources of what they called unprotected, that is illegal, revenue for Uber. They were amongst the top eight uh, or nine cities in the world where they were operating illegally in um, 2014 and 15. So this was a conscious choice backed by a vast amount of, you know, venture capital money, to just ride roughshod over the laws that Australians had set up through their governments. Yeah, and essentially what we're talking about is running a business by tanking on passengers in cars, and traditionally that was regulated through the the taxi industry where you paid a a licensing fee and there were certain controls and standards around the way those cars operated and what was required of those drivers to be registered as taxi drivers, and it It broke that apart and, as you say, did that first, got into those markets, secured huge revenue streams and then did the lobbying later, essentially. So how aggressive was that lobbying? What have we learned about that from this league? Look, it was very, very aggressive. It involved, in Australia, meeting with politicians of all stripes to legalise Uber, you know, saying, let's smash up the taxi monopoly, taxis are dirty and unreliable and expensive. These were the kind of attack lines that they used. They ran a public relations campaign, which I think we all remember from, you know, stuff like um, handing out free ice cream. You know, that was sort of the tip of the iceberg of, of Uber's PR. It was very large, very sophisticated. 
it was extremely aggressive, a very expensive large-scale campaign. So what have we learned about how aggressively they wanted to attack the taxi industry? Was it their strategy to completely obliterate the taxi industry or was it always going to be just tank as much market share as possible? In their, the way they approached their public affairs, they really did use a lot of really sort of eliminationist rhetoric towards taxis. They described them as a outdated monopoly, as, you know, like I said, dirty, unreliable, too expensive, the past, whereas Uber represented the future. And when you look at what they really needed to do to make a really good profit, the economic logic is kind of predicated on the elimination or near near elimination of, of the taxi industry. They didn't manage to do that. You know, we still have taxis. They are a smaller um, industry. Uh, there's not as many of them that you see around, but they're still there. And, you know, Uber has over a decade so far not managed to make a profit. So there are some big headwinds facing Uber. Of course, there was COVID. Um, There's a lot more competitors trying to eat into their market share. Taxi companies have improved their apps. And I think in some jurisdictions, the, the licensing fees have been cut down. So the barriers to entry aren't as big. Some people are going back to taxis because Uber surge pricing is so hectic some some of the times. There's also a labour shortage reducing the number of drivers. So how do you think Uber is going facing these current challenges? So this is a thing, a big problem for tech companies more broadly. When they arrive early, backed by these large amounts of venture capital money, it's all about growth. We're going to build a market. We're going to get lots and lots of drivers. We're going to get lots and lots of passengers. Look, they're paying lots and lots of fares. We'll worry about making a profit later on. Now we're talking about a company that's basically a mature company. It's got competition. It's got an advantage because it moved in first illegally, but it's got competition now and it's finding it a lot tougher to deal with what basically is, you know, the real world. And I think you're right, you know, like they're still going to struggle to turn a profit as long as other people are able to put up other options. And, I mean, the promise of being cheaper, for example, which you just talked about, like surge pricing can just be extraordinarily expensive and taxis can offer you a fixed price guarantee essentially. Yeah, well, personally, I'm at the point where I'm starting to look for taxis more often because of that. The other night I was um, going somewhere in Sydney and a 10-minute drive was going to be $65 in an Uber and I got in a taxi and it was $17. And I just sort of thought, I'm glad they still exist. And that's a very good option for a consumer because you have that price certainty. Yeah, I mean, this is always where Uber's business model was predatory on consumers is surge pricing, right? We're just matching demand and supply is what they would say. But transport's an essential service. You, when, you've, when you've got to get home from, say, the airport or from somewhere late at night, you don't have the luxury of not consuming that product at that point. So it's inherently predatory on our desperate need to mm. get home and get to bed. When you're drunk. <laughs> so where do you think it's going to go from here? I mean, do you think Uber is here to stay? Is there actually a risk that it might not be here and... And would there be enough of a taxi industry left to pick up the slack if it did yeah, go so away? I think, yeah, I think the ride-sharing model, whatever you want to call it, you know, the, the big change really when you strip away all the fancy tech rhetoric and rubbish is that you're allowing people to use their cars to be used as taxis. 
I think that model's here to stay because they have changed the law. They were successful in their campaign. Whether or not Uber delivers it, I think, doesn't really matter for consumers, right? doesn't matter for you and I. Someone's going to be doing that. At the same time, taxis are also not going away, it turns out. You know, like it's still probably the best way to get home late at night because you couldn't be guaranteed they're on the road, which you can't really be guaranteed with a ride-sharing service. Well, I guess we need to look at the positives as well. I mean, using private cars, especially for the cars that were already on the road more efficiently, having less cars sitting around, more cars being used to move people around, potentially less people having to own their own car is good. Also, breaking down some of the entrenched regulation and the high entry cost to the taxi industry was probably a positive thing. Uh, I guess this is how disruption and innovation happens, and it's not always pretty, but hopefully we do benefit from that in greater efficiencies and convenience. I think one of the things, though, we need to learn from this is that this change in regulation was not done on the terms of the population, on on the terms of, like, government or people making democratic decisions. It was done on the terms of a very large... Silicon Valley company with a lot of money coming in and forcing it to happen. And that's not really democratic decision-making. But if you take stock of the whole thing and given what you've just said, it sounds like as consumers, 10 years on, we're in a better position. We still have taxis there that can provide that sort of price floor, but you know, when it suits us and when the prices are lower, we can jump in an Uber. What I wonder is how much longer investors in Uber will continue to subsidise us in that. You know, there is a certain fixed cost of providing point-to-point transport, which is the fancy word for a taxi. The fact that Uber continues to make losses most of the time indicates that they're fundamentally failing to recoup that cost from the end consumer on a reliable basis. Can we really expect fares to remain low during those non-surge periods indefinitely. You know, the post-COVID era where interest rates are going up, so money is more expensive, venture capitalists are less likely to just push money into things that don't make money on the promise of maybe one day there'll be a massive return. The real question mark there about how sustainable the low price of Uber in a non-surge period is. That's Ben Butler from The Guardian Australia with a fascinating long lens look on this big market disruption that's, yes, made our lives more convenient, but raised lots of issues and faces lots of challenges, not least of which is making money. All right, that is it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our hardworking team that make this podcast what it is. Tomorrow, in your feed, will be the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who have you got on this week? This weekend, I have had a chat with Tara Moss. She's a best-selling Canadian-Australian author. She's written 14 books, which... Look, as, as a fellow author, that just I find that really exhausting. <laughs> um, she's quite an incredible woman. Like me, Tara has become disabled later in life. And so we had what was a really interesting conversation about chronic pain and disability and the way the world responds to you differently once uh, you live in a disabled body. We also talked about body image and raising girls. Tara is a former model and we unpack her incredible work ethic which has an interesting 
source, an interesting and a sad source. This interview covers absolutely everything and you will come out of it loving Tara Moss to bits. Make sure you listen. Tara Moss, that's amazing. She's a global superstar. Catch that in your feed tomorrow. Have a wonderful weekend. I'll speak to you Monday. Listener.